And so, Lord, we need you. Um, your word is true. We confess it. Without you, we can do nothing. But, Lord, with you, all things are possible. Uh, even at the level of facing uh, the, you know, the, these times of greatest loss, Lord, we do pray for comfort and grace for Marcy's family. We do pray for the convicting work of your spirit, uh, the convicting work of your word to bring our whole family to a place of recognizing their need of the finished work of Christ over their own life. And so, Lord, we trust you for that. Lord, we know that you're already working in Marcy's family, and, and we just give you praise for that. And then, Lord, I, I just ask that you'd help us this morning. What we're seeing today is so sober, uh, sober content, sobering um, warning. Lord, I pray that it would motivate us to contend for the faith. I pray that it would provoke us to share the gospel, to, to see people repent over sin and come in submission to Christ. Lord, you do all things well. And um, Lord, I know that you, through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, you can speak to us. Uh, that Lord, you'll use this time to outfit us, to equip us. Uh, it's not, we don't wanna just be informed. Uh, we wanna hear from you. And we trust you for that all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so every week we do a quick review. Um, again, in verse three, Jude tells us why he writes this book. He says, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I wanted to write another book like Romans, but I couldn't do it because you needed this warning. I had to tell you to contend for the faith, why? Why do we have to have this reminder to con contend for truth? Well, verse four tells you there are people creeping in with another agenda. Verse four, there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. How do they do that? Well, they're ungodly. <laughs> they preach wrong. To do that, you have to deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've been saying, the main point that we're deriving from this letter is that false teaching is so dangerous in that it leads to rebellion against God. And, and, and to make this point, Jude draws three parallels. We saw the example of the generation of Israel that was delivered from bondage in Egypt. And they, because of sin, because of turning that grace into a pursuit of the flesh, they end up dying in the wilderness, that entire generation. The second parallel to this principle is the angels that sinned. You got angels that left their first estate. They left the place of their proper living, their proper habitation. And um, man, what happened as a result of that? Well, they were arrested. Uh, they're captive in chains, in darkness, awaiting judgment. And then the last parallel was the perversion of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened to them? Well, they were destroyed. 
God literally wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the map. And then Jude gives us five pictures. What do apostates look like? What do false teachers look like? Verse 12, we, verses 12 and 13, we saw the five pictures of apostates. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds are they without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, here's the judgment, plucked up by the roots. Verse 13, wage, uh, raging waves, waves, raging waves, raging waves, waging. raging waves of the sea, boiling out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And so the thing that we need to pay attention to today, what we need to see today is just like God dealt with all of these false teachers, all of these apostates, he dealt with them in judgment. Well, so also God will deal with present day apostates there are false teachers today. There are apostates today that are perpetrating on believers to lead them astray, and God sees it, and he's gonna deal with it. You've got people who do not know Christ, presuming to speak on his behalf, not to lead people into submission to his word, but to have them go away that's right in their own eyes. So why is Jesus coming again? Jesus is coming, that's what we're gonna to see today, why? Well, we know that he's coming for his bride, right? The next thing on the prophetic timeline, the next thing that's gonna happen in terms of the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Christ, in his second coming, it's in two parts. The first part is in secret. Uh, he wants his bride with him, so he comes to get her. Um, go ahead and bring this up. Okay, so we've got it. A basic timeline. Here's the way it breaks down. Uh, the next prophetic event is the rapture of the church. We saw in Second or First Thessalonians chapter four that that results in the reunion of Christ and His bride. And then, sometime after that, the Antichrist is revealed. We saw that in Second Thessalonians chapter two. And then we saw after the revealing of the Antichrist, you've got two forms of judgment, two times of judgment. In heaven, in terms of dealing with believers, there's a time of reckoning, it's called the judgment seat of Christ, or the day of Christ. On earth, the wrath of God is being poured out during the time of great tribulation. In heaven, after the judgment seat of Christ, in Revelation 19, we see Christ now receive his bride, the, 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 the relationship is solemnized with the married supper of the Lamb. Uh, what happens after the marriage supper? Well, in Revelation 19, Christ returns to rule and reign. He comes to finish dealing with the apostates, with the wicked. He deals with them in his wrath, but then he also sets up his kingdom rule and reign for a thousand years. I give you, we went, we went through this in some depth in 2 Thessalonians chapter two. There's a chart on your, in your notes called the timing of the day of Christ. You can, um, you, can, you can work through that at your leisure, okay? If you want, you can go to our website, mbtkc.org, and you can go to the sermon finder. Actually, 
click on Sermon Archive, and then you just type in the Second Thessalonians series, and that'll have the YouTube links where we walk you through the timeline, okay? So we're not gonna retread that water there, but there's the, there's the, 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 the immediate prophetic calendar in chart form. So Christ is coming for his bride. That's one of the reasons for the second coming of Christ. After he gets his bride, some seven years later, he comes in full view. Uh, there, and this is to deal with the second reason for his advent, per what Jude is telling us. What is, and this is what we're, we're gonna see in verses 14 and 15. What is the second major reason that Jesus is coming again? According to verses 14 and 15, he's coming for retribution. Jesus is coming for the apostates. I, I told the first service, I'll tell you this. Um, I, if you're a dude and you haven't watched the movie Tombstone, you don't have your man card yet. Just say it, okay? Uh, Tombstone, you remember Kurt Russell? <laughs> the, what are the guys that, with the red hankies, uh, the, the, the evil gang, what were they called? The Cowboys? What were they called? Cowboys? Yeah. Uh, the Red Hanky Club. Okay, so they're evil. And they've run Kurt Russell's gang out of town. Remember, it's a, like a famous meme. You know, he's, Kurt and his posse are leaving, and he's like, bye. Okay? But he sends a scumbag to the depot to, to take him out. Remember that? And, and Kurt Russell, their crew is ready for the, for the Cowboys, and... They shut him down. I mean, that's where, from at that point, you're on the edge of your seat for the whole rest of the movie. Again, it's rough content. Maybe it isn't for everybody, but, but boys, I'm telling you, one of the greatest movies ever made. Okay. I'm your Huckleberry. Okay, so they left one of the cowboys. They sent him back, and what'd they tell him? Kurt Russell just yells at him. He says, you tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. And you're like, oh, your testosterone level just goes through the roof and <laughs> you're living vicariously through Kurt Russell. Great movie. Well, that, that, that's what's happening here. Jesus is coming and judgment is coming with him. He's coming for false teachers to judge them for their iniquity. I mean, think about it. Those who are teaching to run a racket so that they can fleece the flock. Those who teach to turn the grace of God to lasciviousness. Those who make a prey of God's people. Jesus comes to drop the hammer. This is a major theme in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, you see, I mean, th th this is the major theme of the Bible, man. There's, there's cross-reference after cross-reference after cross-reference. I'll give you a couple. Hebrews 10.30. For we know him that have said, vengeance belongeth to me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. We saw this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Make a mental note there. When Jesus comes back to conquer and rule and reign, who comes with him? It's a big topic uh, in our message this morning, okay? Who's coming back with Jesus? Well, according to 
Paul, according to the second Thessalonians chapter one, Jesus returns with his mighty angels to do what? Verse eight, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who pervert the gospel of grace and turn it to lasciviousness, Christ is coming to judge them. Verse nine, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he, Jesus, shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all them that believe, because their testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reference, these are references to this great day called the Day of the Lord, where Christ comes to rule and reign for a thousand years. The setup for that reign is war, it's retribution, it's judgment. God deals with the wicked first. So Jude addresses this in verse 14. Here we see the second coming of Christ. Uh, We see the advent. And here's how he frames it, verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, of, of who? Of what? Well, he's been talking about them in verse four. They creep in with false teaching in verse eight. I mean, they despise dominion, they speak evil in eight through 10, they, they can't think right, they can't say right, and then like we saw last time, we saw those five portraits of an apostate. This is who he's talking about. Enoch prophesied about these false teachers, saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. I mean, you wanna teach wrong? What ought to make you pee a little at the idea of teaching wrong? I mean, what ought to make you just tremble in fear is the Lord's coming with 10,000s of his saints. There is a day of reckoning coming, and a day of retribution. He's coming to deal with them once and for all. So Jude, to make this point, he quotes Enoch, the seventh generation of humanity. Uh, you can find this quote in the apocryphal book, the book of Enoch. Again, we've talked about this. The book of Enoch is apocryphal. It's not scripture. Its origins are in debate. Uh, It does function as a commentary on Genesis chapter six. It's worth reading one time in your life. Uh, But beyond that, what you wanna do is study scripture, amen? Uh, You'll find that quote there. Either way, Enoch said it. Moses saw the same event, and so he ends up quoting Enoch. Look at Deuteronomy 33 verse one. This is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. He came, and he came with 10,000s. There's that word again, 10,000s. How many is that? We'll talk about that in just a sec. He came with 10,000s of his his saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Again, I, I want you to see it. This is a major, the major theme of scripture. From the Pentateuch by Moses, to the apocalypse of John, the word of God is full of promise, and promise after promise, and more than that, warning after warning. 
The day of the Lord is coming. It is a day of judgment. It's a day of retribution. But it's also a day of glorification. So Jude, in talking about this return of Christ, he's referring to the second advent, the second coming of Christ to rule and reign. And notice that in covering this promise, Jude is quoting Enoch, why? Well, Enoch, in your Bible pictures, he typifies the believer who is raptured out before judgment falls. Enoch is a picture of a New Testament believer. Why? Well, let's, let's, let's check our cross-references. Genesis chapter five describes the life of Enoch. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. Now watch this, verse 24. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, like, where's Enoch? Nowhere. Well, he is somewhere. He was not, he was not on this planet. Why? Well, there it is, for God took him. Paul describes it in Hebrews, Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was translated. Uh, there's a, there's a, quasi-synonym for raptured. He was translated that he should not see death and was not. Enoch was not what? Found because God had translated him. For, he, for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So Enoch has a walk with God. Judgment is coming. You remember not, not too long after Enoch was on this earth, a great flood wipes out, almost wipes out all of humanity. Only Noah's family is saved, right? God's hitting the reset on the human genome. Enoch, before judgment falls, is raptured out. Well, that's a picture of the New Testament believer. The wrath of God on this world is coming again. And before that judgment falls, those who have a walk with God will be not, because God will take us. Is everybody with me on that? You see the picture there. He was not, why? Because God took him, why? Because he had a walk with God. If you have Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, if your faith is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, guess what? You have a walk with God. And just like God took Enoch, one day soon, I think it's gonna be real soon actually, one day very soon, God's gonna take you. He's gonna take you home. And praise the Lord. So we have Jesus. And just like Enoch, I mean Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. Don't you know that in Christ, you are pleasing to God? Your life pleases the Lord? We're pleasing to God in terms of who we are in him. You know, you know who you are in the flesh, okay? Man, sometimes the old man comes off the cross and just comes out, and you will do things that are not becoming your Christian walk. That's who you are in the flesh. That's who the old man is, but that's not actually who you are anymore. Your identity is no longer in your flesh, it's in Christ. And so who we are in Christ 
not only gives us a walk with God, but it's pleasing to God. Thank God for Jesus. Now Enoch, he would have made this prophecy before 3000 BC. I mean, this is one of your first prophecies in your Bible. Um, it's made before the flood that, that, that covered the earth. So he makes this prophecy, behold the Lord cometh with 10,000s of his saints, and then a few short years later, everybody drowns. <laughs> and Jesus didn't come back. Complete, a complete total apocalypse. I mean, just massive judgment on a global scale. He didn't come. And then when Jesus did come back, or when Jesus did come, it was to suffer and die. That's the first advent. Know that the second coming, the second advent is an entirely different story. Uh, he's coming to put down the apostates. Now, who comes with him at his return? Um, Jude says, Enoch says, some number of saints. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands that's the number, 10,000s of his saints. What's a saint? A saint is not a saint because the church proclaims them a saint after their death. That's not how it works. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are bought with a price. You are to now glorify God in your body and your spirit because they're the Lord's. Um, a saint just means holy, a set apart one. You don't in Christ, when you, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you no longer belong to you. That's why you don't get to do what you wanna do in the flesh. You are set apart, you're made holy unto the Lord. That's why what he says is everything. Is everybody with me so far? So being, being a saint, being holy, is not based on your ability to be a really nice person and to get along with everyone. That's not what makes a person holy. Jesus set you apart to himself, okay? So look at the text. Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000s of those that belong to him. 10,000s of his saints. So all believers in Christ get to be a part of the honeymoon. Okay, what am I talking about? Remember our timeline? Rapture for the church. Rapture, judgment seat of Christ, marriage supper of the lamb. After you get married, you go on a, a honeymoon. Well, Jesus does too. A thousand, you could, all you could pony up for your honeymoon was one to two pitiful weeks. That's what you were able to provide for your bride. And that's if everything went well. Look what Jesus does for his bride. 1,000 years, a thousand year honeymoon. Ah, that's what he does, and so the bride returns with Christ. Now we just saw in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 that he returns with his mighty angels. They come back with him, but the saints come too. That's what we see here in Jude. So what's happening? In terms of the family of God, the celestial host, the angelic beings, they're called what? In the Old Testament, they're called the sons of God, right? Uh, in the New Testament, those who are born again, those who are new creatures in Christ, we are called collectively, we're called the sons of God. So we're called the bride of Christ. That's one configuration of the church, but we're also the sons of God. Why, because we're, we too, just like the mighty angels, we're new creatures in Christ, we're direct creations of God himself. 
So what's God doing? He's, he's bringing all the sons of God with him. It's gonna be a group beat down on planet Earth, right? Whenever you come to take care of business, what do you do? You bring your boys, right? And then Jesus does the same thing. The whole of the sons of God, the mighty angels and the saints come with Jesus to take over planet Earth. That's how it's gonna work. I mean, you talk about an alien invasion. That's actually kind of what we have to cover next time. Get ready. The next, the next message from Jude is going to be a little off topic, but related. Just start praying right now. Just start praying right now. Now, all believers get to be with Jesus, but to rule and reign with him is a whole other thing. See, there are requirements. If you want to be a co-heir with Christ, if you want to rule and reign with Christ, there are requirements for that. Now, to be with him, to be a child of God forever, there's the only requirement there, Christ met that at Calvary 2,000 years ago. He covered all of the requirements for you to be a part of God's family. Check out Romans 8:16. God's spirit, the spirit itself, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is one of the reasons why I tell the parents, I tell you mom and dad all the time, do not, you don't want to presume to give your kids the assurance of their faith, the assurance of their salvation. Uh, if, a, if a child is doubting whether or not they're saved, the last thing that you want to do as a parent is to say, oh no honey, you're saved. I remember when you prayed that prayer? We prayed that prayer or you went forward in a church service. I know you're saved because you Mom, dad, you cannot give your kid the assurance of salvation. Only the Spirit of God and the Word of God can do that. It's the Spirit that bears witness with your spirit that you're God's child. If you're saved, you know it. Now, you're, you're gonna have moments of doubt. That should drive you back to the Scripture. What does the Scripture say? These things have I written unto you that you may know what? that you can know that you have eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the promises of God's word to settle that for us. Only the word of God and the spirit of God can confirm to you that you're born again, that you're a child of God. Mom, dad, you don't want to presume to get in the way of the spirit and the word of God, so what do we do? My child has doubts. Uh, I said this in the first service, I'll say it again. My kids are all adults. To this day, I will not give my kids the assurance of their salvation. What will I do? I will continue for as long as I'm on this earth. I'll keep working the gospel of Jesus Christ in every, in, in every way, in every possible configuration, in every possible conversation. I wanna make sure I'm communicating to my children the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? They have to work out their relationship with God. They have to come to terms with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I do believe that my kids have all made valid professions of faith. I think my kids are all saved, but I can't know it. I can't know what's in their heart, so what do I do? I keep giving them the gospel, why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation, not the assurances of me as their father. That won't cut any mustard with God in heaven. Because I give my kids the assurance, God's like, oh yeah, you totally blew it, but your dad said you're good, so come on in. It doesn't work that way. They have to know and believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're saved, you know it. The Spirit, God's Spirit, bears 
witness with your spirit that you're God's child. And if children, watch this now, then heirs, heirs of God. When you get saved, you get God forever. Heaven is your home. But watch this next conditional statement. The Spirit bears witness with you that you're also joint heirs with Christ, but watch this. Now we have this word if. Notice heirs of God, there's no condition, right? That was met for you at Calvary. But to be a joint heir, you must suffer, right? And joint heirs with Christ, if so be, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I, reconcile, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is uh, why we say, you know, um, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Your submission to the word of Christ, to lay down your life, a living sacrifice, to take up your cross and follow after Jesus, not according to what you expect, think, or feel, Some of you, you have a bad day. (laughs) Things don't go your way. You get ripped off in life somehow, and then all bets are off. And you think God's not worthy. You don't think he's worth your submission. And then you just, that now you have your reason to go away that's right in your own eyes. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. If God's word says it, that settles it. We just need to get to submitting to it. We just need to get to obeying it. We need to just get to following it. Somebody in this church doesn't do what you think that they should do. They don't give you what they think that, what you think they should give you. They don't help you the way that you want to be helped. And then, boom, all bets are off, and now you're going away that's right in your own eyes. Good luck with that. God may be your father, but you will not be, you will not share in in Christ's kingdom rule. That is conditional. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, same thing. It is a faithful saying, if if we be dead with him, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. There he's telling Tim about salvation. Read Romans 6. Once you're in Christ, right, you are crucified with Christ. You are buried with Christ. You are risen with him. So verse, verse 11 is talking about salvation. Verse 12 is talking about our sanctification. If we suffer, right? And so in other words, the implication is we suffer in our service. We take up our cross and follow him. Uh, countless cross references to this effect. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us what? He will deny us joint airship, right? Rares of God, verse 11. But in verse 12, your ruling and reigning with Christ is conditional upon you entering into the sufferings of Christ. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. <laughs> you're, uh, you're in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. I don't know if this is worth it. No, 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 God's faithful. You'll rule and reign with Christ. If I suffer, will he really come through? No, no, no. He always comes through. Now notice Jude says he comes with ten thousands of of his saints. So some number is given, but what's the max number 
indicated here. How many, how many 10,000s are gonna come back with Jesus? Anytime you see that phrase, 10,000s, the connotation, what's being communicated there is multitudes will return with him. It's an innumerable company. It's so many you can't count them. That's what's being communicated um, uh, with this word 10,000s. As, as a matter of fact, this word that's translated as 10,000s of his saints, that exact same word is translated as innumerable company in Hebrews 12:22. Check it out. But you're coming to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. How many angels are there? Innumerable. That's how many. Why? There's so many you can't count them. You can't get them to hold still. They won't stay in a line. But there's just a heap ton. I mean, there's just a ton of angels. You'll never count them. There's so many you cannot count them. Innumerable. Now, you can play with the numbers. What if it's 10,000? Some guys will say, oh, it's 10,000 times 10,000. Well, that's super depressing because that means then that there's only 100 million coming back with Jesus. Over the last 2,000 years of church history, there's only 100 million believers that took up their cross and followed the Lord Jesus? <clears throat> I mean, think about it. There's eight billion people on the planet today. 100,000 people, isn't, that's just not very many. If you max it out, you go with 99,999 10,000s. Okay, that puts you at almost a billion. That's a little better. A billion people coming back with Jesus at his return. At the end of the day, you, 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 can't, you can't put a number on it. Uh, the concept that's being communicated very clearly here, especially as you compare scripture with scripture, is it's so many returning with him, you will never count them. Um, if you want a side project for the thousand year reign, try to count all the angels and the believers, and you will waste a thousand years. Okay, so there it is. All right, verse 15, why is he coming back? Here's the action item. This is the action that Jesus will take. He's coming back for retribution. <coughs> to execute judgment upon all and to convince all. Now watch the phrasing. To convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. I don't know if you're picking up on the theme, but he's coming back to deal with the ungodly. It's the ungodly that he's coming to judge. And godly means irreverent. It means impious. It's also translated as wicked. He's coming to judge the wicked. And notice, he's coming to judge them over what they do and what they say. He's coming to judge the ungodly over their ungodly deeds and over their hard speeches which, they have, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You talk trash on Jesus, he hears it, and he's gonna deal with it. He's coming to deal with the wicked. Jeremiah 17, 10, I the Lord search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Man, for the lost world, the word of God ought to make them tremble. God will judge them for their works. He will judge them for what they do. He will judge them for their sin. 
Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man shall come in glory of his Father, here it is again, with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Well, if your work is ungodly, they're ungodly deeds, and you've been You've spent your life talking trash on Jesus. He's coming to reward you for that. You won't like the reward. Second Peter 2, verse nine, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the ungodly, the unjust, to the day of judgment to be punished. So it's a day of retribution. Second Peter 3, seven, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition, there it is again, of ungodly men. Jesus is coming to judge sinners. Oh, that people would flee to Calvary to have their sin judged 2,000 years ago. What a treasure that is to know as a believer in Jesus Christ that God doesn't look at me and say I gotta straighten out this man's sin problem. <laughs> he sees my sin completely paid for and washed away at Calvary 2,000 years ago. But if you don't have the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ shed at Calvary, then one day you will be judged for your sin, for your ungodliness, and the price will be more than you can bear. Now for the church, for believers, we do face a future judgment. We talked about it in the introduction, but God is gonna judge the church, not for her sin, but for her service. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And so here's your homework. Read about our judgment, our future judgment in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and Romans 14. And then run your cross-references. God deals with us, God judges us over what we did with our relationship with him through Calvary, through the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. Now, to be clear, just to make sure that we don't miss it, Jude then brings it back to who God is going to judge. Who are these that the Lord is gonna deal with in retribution? Well, it's the apostates, verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Okay, so these lost, wicked, false teaching apostates, they're murmurers and complainers. Why? Well, they have no peace with God. They're not content with what they have. Why don't they have peace with God? Well, they don't have the Prince of Peace dwelling their heart and life, you know? They don't have peace with God. They're not content with what they have. Why? Because they're walking after their own lusts. That's what the text says. You know, anytime you're trying to fulfill yourself through the lust of the flesh, you're gonna be set up for disappointment. Nobody ever got, nobody ever got sexually satisfied through a porn habit, habit or a sexual perversion. The dysfunction only grows. Get this down in your notes. When you get what you want, whenever you get what you want in the flesh, death is the result. Check out 2 Peter 3.3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. What are they doing? They're walking after their own lusts. 
Jude addresses it in verse 18. How, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time, these murmurers and complainers who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. And if that's what you pursue, death is the result. When you get what you want in the flesh, death is always the outcome. You know what I want in the flesh? Like this is the second service. I've been working out my diaphragm big time, okay? And so I'm hungry right now. And you know what would taste really good? Is a nice, doesn't have to be a super big bowl, but a nice bowl of ice cream. That would be really nice. I would love to have ice cream. I really like ice cream. If you don't like ice cream, I don't want to be too judgy, but there's something wrong with you. (laughs) I mean, I don't see why I shouldn't have ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and for my mid-morning snack and my mid-afternoon snack. And then right before I go to bed, get a little tide me over. Ice cream, I could eat ice cream all day long. Praise the Lord. No. Why can't I have ice cream every day and twice on Sunday? If I was able to get what I wanted in the flesh, I would die a horrible type two diabetes death. That's what would happen. Ice cream, as good as it is, it will kill you. You can overdose on it. If you get, if you're pursuing fulfillment in the flesh, death is always the result. Philippians 3.18, here's the warning, many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. Why do they receive retribution from the Lord? Well, Jesus isn't their Lord, their, their belly is their God. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. First Peter two eleven. dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Man, any time your flesh comes down off the cross and takes over and gets what it wants, it's undermining your soul. It's warring against your soul. God, give us wisdom to see this. That connection that you have, you're sealed by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise. Christ dwells in you, you dwell in Him. Your flesh is at war against that. These false teachers are big mouths, right? Look at verse, uh, verse 16 again. These are murmurs and complainers walking after their own lusts and their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. They're big mouths. Man, let that cause us to tremble, to watch how we speak. We don't wanna just spout off when we're upset. Let's guard our mouth. We don't want to be in league with those who must be judged over what they say. We don't want to live like them. Jesus gives the warning, Matthew 12, verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. If all you're doing in your speech is talking trash, guess what's in your heart? 1 Peter 2, 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain. Whoops, I jumped up. Romans 3.13, there it is. Their throat 
is an open sepulcher. Again, we looked at this last time. Their mouth is a grave. There's no life there. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. James 3, 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Oh, here's my tongue. In that, a world of iniquity. (laughs) I mean, it's comprehensive. Think planetary on scale. A world of iniquity keeps going. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body. Oh yeah, that's bad. Your tongue can get you in trouble. No, no, it's more than that. More than that. And setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. I mean, the tongue, what a dangerous member. Psalms 5 verse 9, there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Why? Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open, open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Chapter 36, verse one. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be, fa- to be hateful. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. This next verse is very sobering. Jesus gives a warning. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. What a sober warning, why? Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 10.10, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured, that generation that God saved out of the bondage of Egypt, that were destroyed in the wilderness, why why did he destroy them? They murmured against him. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. They talk the way that they talk. They teach what they teach because they, they're looking for satisfaction in the flesh. This is why they have big mouths. They're not content with what they have. They want what you have. They want to make merchandise of you. Contrast that with the content, those who are content. In Proverbs 15, 16, it says, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. In Philippians 2, 14, we're commanded to do all things with right speech, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Don't complain, don't murmur, don't squabble. Well, how do we do that? Paul gives us insight in chapter four, verse 11. He says, not that I speak in respect of want, He's talking about the church's financial, physical support of him. But he says, I'm not talking about what, you know, what, what I want. I'm not speaking in, or, or, or what I lack, right? Not that I speak in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith, with that state, rich, poor, eating good, eating oatmeal every meal, I mean, whatever it is, with that state, therewith, to be content. So here it is, Hebrews 13, five. Let the way you live, let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. How can we be content, whether we're financially rich or financially strapped, where we've amassed a lot of goods, or we're just doing with very little, going by with very little? Be content with such things as you have. How can a believer do that? For he saith, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Brothers and sisters, 
If you've got Jesus, again, you've got everything. The creator of heaven and earth indwelling your heart and your life. You are his and he is yours. I mean, to be one with the creator of the universe, you're rich, you have everything. Again, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous or MBT's cribs. Uh, Somebody said, Google Patrick Mahomes' house. Somebody said he bought five plots uh, in, um, uh, you know, out south here. He's got a whole football field and, you know, just like, um, he he would make it on an episode of Cribs. Okay, hovel. I mean, you might as well be living in a lean-to. In my father's house are many mansions, okay? So whatever the best that humanity can produce for a celebrity, come on. When Jesus comes, he's born of a virgin in a carpenter's household. You think that's by accident? The creator of the universe, I mean, the the builder of everything, uh, he does some carpentry while he's coming up, you know, in his earthly life. Can you imagine? He says, in my father's house are many... He said, I go and prepare a place for you, right? In my Father's house are many, can you imagine what Jesus is building right now? Okay, the smallest, I mean the smallest shack in heaven. You can't even imagine how sweet, brothers and sisters, we're not home. We're on this earth to do a job, to do a hard work. It's okay, we can handle some tent living We're just not home yet, right? We can endure hardship as good soldiers. We're not home yet. We can labor. We can invest our lives in his service. Why? Well, because the reward is coming. The sweet sweet accommodations are coming. We have the Lord with us already. I mean, if heaven is being with Jesus, well then we're already there. Be content, why? Because you have God. Lastly, notice the wicked's advantage. Okay, so they're talking the way they're talking. They want a place, they want a pulpit so they can get what they want, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Too many teachers are in it for all the wrong reasons. They want admiration so they can take advantage. They want want a pulpit that gives them the ability to take advantage of others. They're in it not to serve others, but to serve self. They want to pay off. That's what they want, they want a payday. But what they're gonna get for their evil work, they're gonna get payback, and you know the saying, payback is a, I'll let you work that out, no cussing in church. But here it is, man, this is the message. Jesus is coming to judge apostates. And we need to remember this coming judgment. Why? So that we'll do what we're told in verse three. So we'll earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to us. Jude comes to this conclusion in verses 17 through 19, but beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who walk after their own ungodly lusts These be they who separate themselves, sensual. Notice they're separating themselves. It's like a wicked, perverse holiness. They're separating themselves to what? Fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Sensual, not having the spirit. An absent Calvary, 
the day of retribution is coming for them. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name, and Lord, help us to be sobered by your word this morning. Help us to see that you're coming to judge false teachers, those who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They separate themselves, fulfilling, walking after the lusts of the flesh. They're here to use people, not serve people. Lord, help us to earnestly contend for the faith. Help us to be a people who tremble at your word, who study to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing your word. We want to apply Genesis to Revelation. We want to apply it properly, not just to our lives, but we want to help others also. We want to apply it properly in the age of grace. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts and minds to to receive and believe and submit ourselves to your word. Lord, if there's any here today that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Pour out your spirit, please, and conviction. Help the lost see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, how it offends you as a righteous and holy God, but also help them to see your love. You love sinners so much that Christ gave his life so that they could be bought back, brought back, bought back from their sin and the wages of it. Lord, for believers who are pursuing the, a life in the flesh, the lust of the flesh, Lord, I pray that today would be a day of conviction and repentance and and that, Lord, we'd be done with the lies of the devil, we'd be done with our excuses, and that we'd just surrender our lives to you. Pray that today would be a day of rededication. I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.